Recommendations for Institutional and Governmental Management of Gender Information by Florence Ashley, published in 2021 in the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. Introduction. Early in 2018, I took part in the Canadian federal government's LGBTQ2 secretariat consultations with trans and two-spirit communities. The consultations were part of the government's exploration of, quote, new approaches to the collection, use, and display of sex and gender information in order to be more inclusive of gender-diverse communities, end quote. Few participants and I later expressed disappointment with the consultation process. I noted source of resentment on my part, the inability of participants to review the report and comment on it prior to its release, and the absence of opportunities to submit written comments and recommendations. However, because participants were not invited to flesh out their thoughts and written submissions, the recommendation appears somewhat unlikely to be followed. The government's resulting report, which participants did not have the opportunity to comment on prior to release, was limited in many ways and did not propose, in my eyes, a structured and thoughtful analysis of the issues posed by gender information management. During the consultation, I recommended that the government distinguish clearly between three contexts of information gathering administrative reports, aggregate assessment, and research. Upon reflection, I would now add a fourth context of information gathering, namely special programs. Anecdotally, I heard many other participants share similar dissatisfaction with the consultation process, which they also felt was less than meaningful. This article is an attempt to flesh out my recommendations for the institutional and governmental management of gender information. Although my initial motivation for the article arose in a Canadian context, the concerns that animate the article and provide fuel for the analysis are equally relevant to the United States given the two countries' cultural and legal similarity. Painting an accurate portrait of the prevailing state of affairs in Canada and the United States is challenging due to the heterogeneity of the landscape. Nevertheless, a few general observations can be made. Gender information is not highly regulated in either country, leading to a patchwork of practices across institutions. The use of gender information in administrative records is pervasive and is often used for identification purposes, notably at banks, where trans people are at risk of being locked out of their accounts due to their voice. Legal sex is frequently the sole information per, uh, recorded, often under a false impression that it is legally required. Gender identity and sex assigned at birth are rarely distinguished, and in the United States, trans people are at constantly at risk of being erased from population-level surveys, which has dire impacts on policymaking and funding. Having issued a policy direction on gender information management, the Canadian federal government stands, stands in notable contrast to the United States' patchwork approach. The policy direction requires Canadian federal departments and agencies to provide clear rationales for requesting, recording, and recounting gender information, to default to the use of gender identity rather than sex assigned at birth, to provide for options outside male and female, and to provide non-intrusive ways to change gender information. Although this policy direction might at first glance offer an appealing model for the United States to follow, it does not go far enough namely by maintaining the use of gender information in administrative records for identification purposes, condoning the use of data, uh, of that data as a proxy for health information, allowing the collection of gender information without any genuine necessity and by failing to tailor its directives to different contexts of use, the Canadian government fails to adequately protect trans communities. As gender information management becomes an area of increasing concern and tension, 
A cogent and principled approach attuned to the realities of trans people is needed. How should institutions and government approach gender information? This article forays into the territory of gender information management to develop a flexible framework of necessity, accuracy, consensualism, and degendering. In part one, I sketch the ethical considerations and principles which guide my recommendations. Whereas ethical considerations are the values which underlie my recommendations, the why the proposed principles give us the conceptual tools to bridge the why to the when and how of gender information management. In part two, I explore four different contexts of information gathering and reporting and make recommendations specific to each of those contexts. The four contexts are administrative records, special programs, aggregate assessment, and research. I outline when general information should be gathered and recorded. And in the last part, I sketch how and what, when, on, when justified under the recommendations, general information should be requested, recorded, and recounted. Part 1. Ethical considerations and guiding principles. A. Ethical considerations. Various ethical considerations are relevant when analyzing gender information management and making policy recommendations. Ethical considerations arise in areas that include privacy, accounting for needs, legal requirements and identity, and identity verification, misgendering and discrimination, and surveillance. Some of these ethical considerations pull strongly in favor of gathering gender information, while others pull against it. Often, these considerations give rise to reasons for building in constraints on how, when, and what gender information should be gathered. Ethical considerations are the underlying values informing my selection of guiding principles, which in turn will be used to make recommendations. Ethical considerations can also serve as an interpretive tool when applying guiding principles uh, to contemplated institutional and governmental management of gender information. Principle of Privacy Many people do not want their gender or sex assigned at birth to be recorded. This is especially true for trans people who may be concerned that their recorded gender and or sex assigned at birth could reveal them to be trans. Non-binary individuals routinely have to opt between disclosing the fact that they identify with a gender other than the one they were assigned at birth and misreporting their gender on institutional documents, which would amount to sort of self-misgendering. I have personally misreported my gender as female a variety of times to facilitate social intercourse and avoid, and avoid probing inquiries into my non-binary identity. The decision was uncomfortable and distressing, despite being voluntary. Gender identities and transitude, namely being trans, are quintessentially personal information. As Hale Thompson observed in the study, 93% of trans participants did not include trans or genderqueer as their gender marker on Facebook, despite being open about their transitude with friends. Even if the in the trans-specific study, some participants were reluctant to report their sex assigned birth. Privacy concerns were heightened vis-a-vis -vis the reporting of sex assigned birth on institutional intake forms because of the risk of information sharing. Quote, multiple instances of non-disclosure were given in every group, as were examples of involuntary disclosure, end quote. The concerns are not limited to the recording of sex assigned at birth, however, and also arise in relation to gender identity. Reporting gender identity can disclose transitude for non-binary individuals, as well as for those who may still be socially read, whether intentionally or not, as their sex assigned at birth. 
Because gender identity may evolve over time, having a record of it can make things more difficult for individuals whose identity has changed since the time of intake. Though many trans individuals are, com are comfortable providing their gender identity, they may not be comfortable in all contexts, and nor are all of them comfortable providing such personal information. Gender information in institutional records is typically available to all administrative staff and too often readily available to all other employees of the institution as well. As Thompson notes, quote, employers, pharmacists, and law enforcement have access to various aspects of health records as well as hospital registration staff, any of whom a patient may have to interact with repeatedly and may depend upon for essential resources, end quote. Such wide-ranging access to gender information appears inappropriate. Beyond the fear that gender information may lead to later harassment, discrimination, and violence, a risk that I consider more at length as a separate ethical consideration, access to gender information by others can be distressing in and of itself for trans non-binary and gender non-conforming individuals. Now, privacy-enhancing measures can and should be considered. Such measures in include, quote, patient portals, encryption, user-defined roles, and data segmentation, end quote. As Thompson notes, quote, before introducing opportunities to expose additional sensitive information, such as specification of sex assigned at birth, providers may need to devote resources to the protection of trans patients' sensitive personal information. Given that sensitive information is not always protected, Patients may withhold sensitive information or avoid care altogether to minimize harassment, disrespect, and denial of services, end quote. Such privacy-enhancing measures remain limited. Segmenting information, restricting who has access to that information, and adopting anonymization techniques depends on institutional willingness and access to resources. These techniques also have significant practical drawbacks, even for institutions that can afford them. As Paul Holmes highlighted, institutional and research data can and has been de-anonymized. He writes that researchers in the last 15 years, quote, have done more to chip away at anonymization. They have essentially blown it up, casting serious doubt on the power of anonymization, proving its theoretical limits and establishing what I call the easy re-identification result, end quote. The risks are even higher with trans populations, which are sufficiently small to allow unique identifications from relatively little information. Large institutional records often have more than the little information that would actually be required to re-identify trans individuals. As Ohm explained, quote, even though administrators had removed any data fields they thought might uniquely identify individuals, researchers in each of the three cases unlocked identity by discovering pockets of surprising uniqueness remaining in the data. Just as human fingerprints left at crime scenes can uniquely identify a single person and link that person with anonymous information, so too do data subjects generate data fingerprints combinations of values of data shared by nobody else in their table, end quote. We also have to account for accidents and unknown. An appropriate disclosure of gender information has been known to occur when institutions transmit data to other institutions. Transferring data between a system which records both sex assigned at birth 
even if they restrict access to that information and gender identity, and a, six, and a system that which records only sex could plausibly lead to accidental and, un and unintentional disclosing of trans individuals' sex assigned birth. Data breaches such as uh, SQL injection and heartbleed bug, as well as recurring news of unauthorized access to encrypted data, shows the risks associated with privacy-enhancing measures in our technology-reliant world. The robustness of privacy-enhancing measures also depends on authority and political power. Courts, law enforcement officers, and governmental bodies can require transmission of individual or disaggregated data in varied contexts. In a recent legal case from Quebec, the government requested access to raw data from the Transpol study in Ontario. Although the judge concluded that the public interest in privacy outweighed the public interest in truth finding for the purposes of the lawsuit, a different judge could easily have concluded otherwise. <clears throat> the case also reveals cross-jurisdictional dangers as a Quebec court considered ordering disclosure of disaggregated data from a different jurisdiction. Institutional records and research data gathered in states with relatively strong privacy protections may be vulnerable to disclosure requirement under the law of other jurisdictions. The volatility of the US and Canadian political context for trans communities warrants caution. The government and courts have far-reaching powers and information that is assumed to be private now may prove itself not to be so in the future. Accounting for needs. Gender information may be needed for various reasons. Patients, communities, and institutions have various needs that can sometimes be best met by the gathering of gender information. Those needs are perhaps best separated into two categories, needs of the individuals and needs of communities and institutions. Patients' needs may be highlighted by gender information. This factor has been most discussed in the healthcare context. Recording both gender identity and sex assigned at birth can be used to generate automatic re reminders that say trans women may need prostate exams at a certain age, while systems that do not record gender information or only record gender identity remain ill-equipped to provide these reminders. The inclusion of a single indicator of gender, whether gender identity or sex assigned at birth, inhibits institutions from properly counting for individual needs. The U.S. Centers for Medicaid and Medicaid Services and Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology now require that electronic health records be able to include gender identity information, in addition to sex assigned at birth, because of such individual healthcare needs. <coughs> Whether gender information is the best way to address those needs is questionable. Although vaginoplasties do not typically involve removing the prostate, other transition-related procedures such as hysterectomies do alter important factors of care, for example, the need for a cervix cancer screening. Hormonal profile may also be insufficient in addressing medical need given the potential differences between endogenous and exogenous hormones. It may be preferable for institutional records to contain surgical history and the presence of certain organs rather than gender. Organs should be named neutrally, and records should avoid unnecessarily gendering them, such as by saying male sexual organ for penis. Questions regarding surgical history and organ inventory should be carefully worded to avoid presuming a single, narrow view of medical transition which does not accurately represent every trans person's transition progress. Indeed, some trans people do not wish to medically transition at all. 
as Greta Bauer, Jessica Bremo, Eden Scheim, and Christopher Dharma observe, quote, research shows that a substantial person, proportion of trans people who indicate they have completed a medical transition have not had any surgeries, end quote. Alternatively, reminders of this kind could be coded separately, with doctors and patients using, for instance, patient portals, indicating whether they want to receive those reminders when accessing the patient's file. Not all needs operate at the individual level. Research can reveal the needs of communities and indirectly improve their quality of life. Institutional funding is also often dependent on the ability to measure groups and income. Recording gender information may improve funding opportunities for directed initiatives and programs. Our society is organized around gender and thus comparing outcomes and conducting gender-based analyses of data can be an immensely fruitful endeavor. In their work, Christine Labuski and Colt Mayer-Saint-Amand gives a few examples of contexts where breaking down information by gender would be enlightening. Quote, is the research about a workplace, a site where gender asymmetries exist for non-transgender people? Is it about bodily aesthetics or the pressure to have cosmetic surgery? Is it about sexual assault, military service, or other areas where maleness and femaleness are experienced in sometimes acutely different ways?" End quote. In Canada, the use of gender-based analysis plus from research to policymaking is recommended to highlight the different life experiences of men, women, and non-binary people, although non-binary people are unfortunately too often left out, as well as to highlight the different impacts which policy measures may have on each group. Thus, it's important that any recommendation for institutional and governmental management of gender information consider the importance of the information and accounting for the needs of people of different genders. In the context of trans communities, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health EMR Working Group warns that, quote, failure to collect data on and provide systematic inclusion in health delivery systems of transgender persons has negative impacts on health. In order to receive appropriate and meaningful cares, it is essential that individual populations be recognized and counted. The Gender Identity in U.S. Surveillance Genius Group, convened by the Williams Institute, makes a similar point. Quote, collecting population-based data on the social, economic, and health concerns of these communities is essential if federal, state, local, and nonprofit agencies are to adequately serve gender minority people and develop effective strategies for improving the circumstances of transgender and other gender minority people's lives. End quote. Research often fails to inquire into gender identity and gender assignment at birth, preventing subset analyses of trans respondents, which could reveal different outcomes or needs than those of cis respondents. Asking the wrong questions, for instance by categorizing research participants based on their sex assigned at birth, can skew results, as gender identity is typically the more relevant metric when it comes to gender-based analysis. Lack of standardized gender information questions in population-level surveys continues to raise concern regarding construct and external validity of research. Research which does not count trans people cannot properly account for them or their needs. It's known, for instance, that trans women in the United States have an elevated prevalence of HIV-AIDS. Surveys which only separate by gender are unlikely to to adequately capture the lived situation of trans women, and especially black trans women, when it comes to risk of sexually transmitted infections. Here, 
it would be inappropriate to ask solely for one's gender identity or sex assigned at birth because several prevalence among trans feminine individuals is not fully captured by either metric and would risk erasing queer trans men who are also at greater risk of seroconversion. Nonetheless, asking for gender identity and sex assigned at birth may be insufficient to account for the needs of trans communities. Gender expression may also be relevant, as is whether a person is known to be trans in various spheres of life. To give an example, the fact that I'm typically read as a cis woman in everyday life means that I experience relatively little harassment and discrimination based on transitude from strangers, but I'm more vulnerable in other spaces because of my visibility as a scholar and participant in the public sphere. Asking the right question at the right time is essential. When design, designing research, it is important to keep in mind the warnings of Christine Labuski and Cole Saint-Amand and seek to avoid, quote, well-intentioned misunderstandings that transgender is a stable and measurable thing, end quote. Gender is complex, and since the transgender experience is predicated on an experience of gender, it too is complex. The failure to count communities in research also impacts funding allocation. Funding is typically dependent on the ability to concretely identify and quantify communities' needs. To do so effectively, it is necessary to conduct research and aggregate assessment initiatives to ascertain gender information. Hal Thompson's research notes the importance of gathering gender information for funding, quote, to participants who reported working in healthcare settings that prioritize trans patients noted that the use of the two-step question helps clinic report greater number of trans patients and increases access to related funding, end quote. Telling a compelling narrative of need, which necessitates disclosure of gender information, can facilitate funding of initiatives aimed at improving trans lives under our current economic system. Although such an improvement of trans lives is mediated by institutional needs and funding dynamics and can be frustrating for those who are asked to disclose sensitive gender information, it remains an important aspect of gender information management. Legal requirements and identity verification. No amount of goodwill on the part of institutions or government agencies cha can change the fact that sometimes gender information may be required. Although some organizations may be willing to engage in acts of civil disobedience, many will not. Gender information can be required in regulated industries and in context of institutions interfacing with the government, insurance billing, diplomas, healthcare, and so forth. Madeleine Deutsch and David Buchholz note that in the healthcare context, quote, safety practices, HIPAA and the red flag rule all require verification of legal identity in settings such as lab, x-ray, or procedures, end quote. Even when it is not required, gender information management in other institutions may make the use of gender information unavoidable. Reimbursement requests by pharmacies sent electronically to insurance providers are typically rejected if gender information doesn't correspond to the information they have on file, which is typically the person's legal gender marker. This problem can persist even after one's legal gender marker is changed, depending on the insurance company's functioning and technological setup. Because gender information is presumed to be publicly shared by visible gender presentation, it's often relied upon as a security measure in line with the belief that, quote, the more information surveillance apparatuses can collect about an individual, the less risk, quote, they pose. 
Unfortunately, many institutions presume cisgender identities and fail to account for the fact that gender affirmation is a poor security measure and creates unnecessary challenges for trans and gender nonconforming individuals. Take the example of banks that rely on voice as an indicator of gender to judge whether the callers are attempting to commit fraud, which often locks trans people out of their bank accounts. Someone with a voice perceived as masculine could readily overcome the security measure and access the account of someone listed as female by enlisting the services of someone whose voice matches dominant gender expectation, a characteristic that roughly half of the population possesses. Adding a single security question not dependent on gender information would do much more to prevent fraud as nearly all other information is more discriminating than gender when it comes to identity verification. As A.J. Newman-Wiffler eloquently points out, quote, if, for the sake of argument, one accepts the government's interest in maintaining highly accurate identification of its citizens, sex designations provide only marginal utility in comparison to many more accurate technological methods, such as biometrics like fingerprints, retinal scans, facial recognition, and DNA samples. While I vehemently caution against the use of biometrics, in line with my later ethical consideration of reducing surveillance, since that information can easily be misused by institution governments, Newman-Whiffler does demonstrate the frailty of gender information by contrast to additional information of nearly any other kind. The only question that is arguably worse than asking for gender when verifying identity is, are you human? I'm here presuming that aliens on Earth would be sufficiently technologically advanced to have no need for fraud or identity theft. Institutions and governments should also be careful not to overstate legal requirements. Oftentimes, those requirements are presumed rather than established. In 2016, I criticized McGill University's preferred name policy for failing to fully respect trans students' names and genders. Although they subsequently improved the policy in response to the article, they have continued to argue that legally, they had to continue using the person's legal name and gender markers on diplomas. This may be true. However, my own research into statutes and jurisprudence has not allowed me to validate this claim, and the university has so far declined to state the basis for its belief. To give another example, the red flags rule mentioned by Deutsch and Buchholz is ambiguous as to whether it requires institutions to record gender information. Red flags are defined as, quote, a pattern, practice, or specific activity that indicates the possible existence of identity theft, end quote. Financial institutions are tasked with identifying relevant red flags. Given that gender information is a poor security measure, it may be reasonably possible for financial institutions not to deem gender information relevant for the purposes of the red flags rule. Because it is a poor identification measure, the use of gender information for identification purposes is plausibly unconstitutional. In the United States, Heathfog Davis has argued that, quote, the use of sex markers on government-issued identity documents fails even the lowest level of judicial scrutiny, end quote, and that the, quote, bureaucratic use of, of sex certainly fails to meet the highest standard of intermediate judicial scrutiny that courts apply to cases involving sex, end quote. Davis's argument relies on the observation that institutions and government agencies have a legitimate and important interest in identity verification. 
Quote, sex markers are not helpful in guarding against personal identity fraud because maleness and femaleness are characteristics that we share with many other people, end quote. A similar argument could be made in Canada, which does not apply tiers of scrutiny, but instead requires proof that the laws limiting equality rights be rationally connected to valid objective, impair equality rights as little as possible, and be proportionate in their effects. Misgendering and discrimination. Disrespect of people's gender causes distress and impacts access to resources. In healthcare, it's known that failing to refer to trans people by their proper name and pronouns, for instance, by calling out their unchanged legal name in a waiting room, impacts service satisfaction and can prevent them from returning. It also creates a risk of harassment, discrimination and violence in the hand of those informed of their dead name and sex assigned at birth. Misgendering the act of referring to trans people by gender other than the one which corresponds to their gender identity perturbs social identity and is experienced as a psychological injury, contributing to anxiety and depression. In the words of a respondent to the 2015 US Transgender Survey, quote, I was consistently misnamed and misgendered throughout my hospital stay. I passed a kidney stone during that visit. On the standard, 1 to 10 pain scale, that's somewhere around a 9. But not having my identity respected, that hurt far more, end quote. Fear of being misgendered contributes to trans people's avoidance of public spaces and can create a barrier to well-being and equal access to resources. Some authors have suggested that recording people's gender identities, names, and pronouns can help institutions and government employees avoid misgendering and discriminating against trans individuals. Charlotte Chuck T, G. Ledbetter, and Chris Youssef have suggested that including trans people's gender identity and sex assigned birth in institutional records can help staff determine proper pronoun use, the assumption being that trans women and men use she and he respectively and that non-binary individuals can be identified and asked for their pronouns, thereby reducing the number of transgender persons who avoid medical treatment based on expectations or actual experience of prejudice and discrimination. The inclusion of gender identity and sex assigned at birth in institutional records can also express awareness of trans realities and normalize transitude as part of healthy human diversity. The extent to which including gender information can redress misgendering and discrimination must not be overstated, however. Misgendering and discrimination is not always rooted in ignorance, and not only can staff ignore or overlook gender information on files, but that information can actually contribute to misgendering by identifying individuals as trans. Hostility to trans people is widespread, and though many employees of large institutions and governments are well-intentioned, many others aren't. Harassment, discrimination, and violence can also flow from curiosity. In a large-scale survey of trans people, 15% of respondents reported being asked invasive or unnecessary questions about being transgender, not related to the reason for the visit to a healthcare provider. Such experiences also occur outside of healthcare contexts. Access to gender information may not have a signif as significant an impact on trans well-being as is often assumed. We have reasons to doubt the unspoken assumption that misgendering and discrimination arises primarily out of ignorance instead of trans antagonism or curiosity. Gender information may be unnecessary to avoid misgendering or discriminating against trans people. 
inclusive policies that include degenerating interactions with strangers and offering one's pronouns upon a meeting, thus implicitly inviting the person's pronouns, can have similarly beneficial effects on trans well-being and access to resources, while avoiding some of the risks associated with recording gender information. Surveillance. Information is power. Those not privy to sensitive information cannot misuse it to silence or harm others. The fear of surveillance in trans communities is bound up with the history of surveillance as a predecessor of suppression. Too often, surveillance precedes violence. Two recent publications, one in a journal of sexual medicine and one in pediatrics, proposed the creation of a registry of trans youth for research purposes. The former, which included authors who have long been accused of practicing reparative therapy, was met with outrage on part of parents of trans youth in the United Kingdom. In response to the pediatrics publication, which suggested that, quote, a comprehensive outcomes registry in the United States in which patient-centered outcome are used could help guide the future of ethical patient-centered gender-affirming care, end quote, I wrote that, quote, the establishment of registries is also a loaded political matter. The Trump administration is currently attacking trans right from various ends. By proposing a Muslim registry in 2016, his administration has shown a willingness to use data sets for ill purposes. Registries call our communities back to violent eugenistic pasts, pasts which are beginning to look like our futures too. Although I have no doubt about the good intentions of the authors, their proposal risks giving anti-trans movements ammunition and awaken our collective trauma." End quote. Opposition to surveillance structure has, long, has a long history in trans scholarship and is prominent in Dean Spade's acclaimed book, Normal Life. For him, quote, critical trans politics requires an analysis of how administrative systems in general are sites of production and implementation of racism, xenophobia, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, and ableism under the guise of neutrality. Our attention to how life chances are distributed rather than simply to what we what the law says about marginalized group exposes how various moments of administrative categorization have lethal consequences. End quote. Aggregated gender information can enable harassment, discrimination, and violence by labeling trans bodies as such and indicating to ill intention and misguided institutional and governmental actors how they may be hurt. Whereas I would have a little problem accessing any women-only spaces with my current gender presentation, the existence of gender information disclosing the fact that I was assigned male at birth may lead to my exclusion from those spaces or at the very least hostility on the part of those tasked with policing access to spaces. An experience of this kind was reported by a young black woman participating in Hale Thompson's previously cited study. She explained that, though she was not otherwise identifiable as trans, a clinic worker threatened to call the police on her for using the women's restroom when he learned her legal status as quote-unquote male. More information generates more risk. The increase in reliance on gender information as part of the surveillance apparatuses for identification in the airport, for instance, has raised the stake of miscategorization and misuse of information. This reality is all the starker for those seen by security forces as posing risks because of the color of their skin or the country of birth. As I pointed out in this section on privacy, information gathered for one purpose may be shared and used for a different purpose, raising concerns about our ability to compartmentalize information to preserve privacy in 
limit surveillance. Quote, one major element of this new surveillance is the increased sharing and comparison of different pools of data collected by different government agencies. New practices have emerged and various agencies now compare their entire data sets and seek out mismatched information. The rationale for this activity is to track down people who have obtained identity documents or work authorization using false information, end quote. Even if sex assigned at birth is not recorded, deferring gender information across different institutions can generate similar risks. Patients of LGBT clinics report poor experiences despite inclusive policies. Despite concerns that gender information can enhance risks of discrimination, previous research has shown that trans people are relatively willing to provide it. However, while they tend to submit to gender information management processes, trans people remain concerned about information misuse. Submission is not legitimation. One particular source of concern arises in the employment context. Trans individuals have reported being terminated by their employers after health insurance information revealed that they were trans. Concerns over information management are likely to be higher under trans antagonistic governments. Experiences of past discrimination are associated with reluctance in sharing gender information. The context of information gathering is also relevant to those risks. Anonymous surveys and aggregated data pose fewer unanticipated surveillance risks than do institutional records. Depending on the breadth of population survey and which information is gathered, re-identification may be nearly impossible. Given the stakes, more information is not better but worse. It's no surprise then that critical scholars have cautioned against gender information management reform and expansion initiatives. Although reform can reduce negative impacts of gender information management on trans lives, notably by framing gender information in an inclusive manner that accounts for trans lives, it fails to address the core problem of surveillance. It also erases the history of identity management of trans lives with the recording of transitude being motivated by desire to quote-unquote protect straight men from being duped into marrying a transsexual woman. In light of this concern, Dean Spade calls for a more attentive and nuanced approach for the management of gender information. Quote, if a deeper question were asked, one that addressed whether gender data was really necessary, and if so, what aspect of gender data should be collected and how, more nuanced and effective policymaking might result. This is not an argument for a simplistically gender-blind government, but rather a shift towards a more critical view of the use of gender data in government record-keeping. If collecting data on gender had to be justified by a close connection to institutional purposes and false assumptions about the use of gender data to verify identity fell by the wayside, the use of this data could have less unintended negative consequences for both individuals and institutions. The confusion currently being caused by batch-checking procedures aimed at immigration enforcement and terrorism prevention exposes the incoherency of gender classification, allowing us to consider putting an end to the administrative attempts to make a gender a staple marker of identity verification and a logical way of dividing and managing the population when it clearly does not achieve either purpose consistently." End quote. As pernicious, collecting gender information also reinforces the idea that the very category it purports to observe are of social significance. Gender information management is not merely a material process, but also a symbolic one. By gathering gender information, institutions perpetuate popular understandings that it is relevant information for institutional arrangement. 
As Dean Spade argues, quote, rules related to government gender classification do not simply discover and describe maleness and femaleness, but instead produce two populations marked with maleness and femaleness as effects and objects of governance, end quote. Much like law constructs a public sense of right and wrong aligned with the dichotomy of legal-illegal, so do informational practices by institutional and governmental actors maintain a public sense of social categorization along gender lines. By treating gender information as routine, institutions and governments signify to the public that they're justified in treating gender as routine information, implicitly inviting them to categorize individuals as male or female and to police spaces along those lines. Gender information management, interagency sharing, and monitoring refines gender something to be policed, carrying all the harm of gender policing along for the ride. Reducing surveillance reduces the risk of harassment, discrimination, and violence because of trans antagonism, but also because of other axes of oppression, such as racism. Institutions and governments reconsidering their management of gender information should consider how their management of information, not just in gender one, may create risk for those whose information is gathered and recorded. Even when the problematic nature of gender information management is readily apparent, institutions and the broader public shed and plausibly mistaken belief that gender information is necessary for everyday administration can make practices of gender information management go unchallenged. Getting principles. The following guiding principles are my attempt to distill the previous ethical considerations into a set of actionable precepts which strike an appropriate balance between them, protecting privacy and mitigating surveillance, misgendering and discrimination as much as possible, while also allowing some gender information to be requested, recorded, and recounted to meet individual, community, and institutional needs. The first three principles should be interpreted as mandatory and directive, whereas the fourth one is an interpretive principle. The first principle is of necessity. Gender information should only be requested, recorded, or recounted when it is reasonably necessary to accomplish an acceptable purpose. Principle two, accuracy. The management of gender information should favor accuracy, opting for questions and measures more specific than gender identity and sex assigned at birth whenever possible. Principle three, consensuality. Gender information management should be consensual. Consensuality in gender information management includes declaration of purpose and availability, optionality, and modularity. Though all three components of consensuality are required, clear legal requirements may force institutions and government agencies to violate the sub-principle of optionality. Principle 4. Degendering. Application of the three preceding principles should be done in the spirit of degendering. In applying the principles to a specific context of information management, institutions and governments should err on the side of not requesting, recording, or recounting gender information. I will now provide a brief explanation of each principle, what it entails, and how it relates to the previously delineated ethical consideration. Principle 1. Necessity. The principle of necessity holds that the management of gender information must be justified by the purpose of information gathering. This justification is only found when the management of gender information is reasonably necessary to accomplish an acceptable purpose. This principle is rooted in the insight that requesting, recording, and recounting gender information imposes a risk on those whose information is gathered insofar as it participates in institutional and governmental surveillance and interferes with individuals' privacy. Necessity aims at ensuring that needs and legal requirements are accounted for. 
When evaluating necessity, the first step will involve clearly delineating which need or purpose is served by gender identity management and how important the need or purpose is in the context under consideration. I previously set forth three acceptable contexts in which gender information management may be necessary, counting for needs, legal requirements and identity verification, and curtailing misgendering and discrimination. Although this list is non-exhaustive, it should be expanded only in the clearest of cases, given the stake of gender information management for trans people. A specific gender information management policy will be reasonably necessary if it is proportional and minimally infringing. First, the needs or purpose met by the policy must outweigh the violation of privacy and the enhancement of surveillance that it entails. Second, the policy must be carefully tailored to impact privacy and increase surveillance as little as is reasonably possible while continuing to meet the needs or purpose. We must infringe on rights as little as possible and only when a greater need justifies it. Proportionality and minimal infringement must not be considered in isolation, but rather together. A policy is not reasonably necessary if another policy or course of action would strike a significantly better balance between the purposes and risks. Evaluating necessity is perhaps best eliminated by a hypothetical. Imagine having two policies, A and B, whose values is evaluated in degrees of well-being from a scale of 1 to 5. Policy A meets its purpose, thus increasing well-being by 5. At the same time, it decreases well-being by 4 as a result of its infringement on privacy. Policy B increases well-being by 4 in meeting the same purpose, but only decreases well-being by 1 because of its relatively minor impact on privacy. Considering proportionality and minimal infringement in isolation, policy A may appear to be reasonably necessary as it satisfies its purpose and results in a net increase in overall well-being. However, evaluating proportionality and minimal infringement holistically shows policy B to be preferable since it increases net well-being by 3, whereas policy A increases net well-being by only 1. In this case, policy A could not be said to be reasonably necessary. Now, of course, this example is overly simplistic. Well-being is difficult to define, measure, and predict. Further, well-being is not a sole determinant of ethical action. One can think of justice as another one, for instance, and those different determinants may still be incommensurable. Nonetheless, this simplified example is illustrative of the way in which proportionality and minimal infringement come together when judged not in isolation, but as mutually constitutive factors. To quickly summarize, a policy is not reasonably necessary in at least three cases. First, it is not reasonably necessary if the risk to privacy or the increase in surveillance is greater than the purpose or need it seeks to serve. Second, it is not reasonably necessary if the identified need or purpose can be equally satisfied without infringing privacy or increasing surveillance as much. And third, it is not reasonably necessary if a different policy or course of action fares slightly more poorly in satisfying the identified needs and purpose, but poses significantly less risk to privacy and the reduction of surveillance. Principle two, accuracy. Gender information management should strive for accuracy. In many contexts, gender information is not the most relevant or accurate metric. As previously noted, having a prostate or cervix is a more accurate predictor of prevalence of prostate or cervical cancer than is gender. HIV AIDS organizations and research projects frequently make trans women, who also have a high prevalence of HIV, invisible because of the assumption that gender identity or sex assigned at birth is the primary determinative risk rather than sexual behavior and choice of partners. 
whether understood as men who have sex with men or lumped together with cis women, trans women's unique needs and patterns of risk behavior tend to be obscured, leading to poorer care. From the perspective of those interested in HIV among men who have sex with men or among women, the heterogeneity introduced by including trans women in the aggregated data without further subset analysis impedes the reliability of the results. Reliance on gender information and or on specific questions about medical transition impedes scientific validity and the provision of quality services to trans people. The principle of, of accuracy helps ensure that the requested information best responds to the needed purpose to address, avoiding cisnormative assumptions about the relationship between gender, bodies, and behaviors. Instead of relying on a convenient but inaccurate proxy such as gender, institutions and governments should examine their reasons for seeking out gender information and substitute gender questions with questions more narrowly tailored to their purpose. As Dean Spade remarks, quote, asking whether gender data is actually a good proxy for genitalia in the way that data is currently being gathered, whether the goal of gathering data about genitals is useful and important to the articulated administrative aim, and what assumptions about gender and genitalia underlie the collection of this data may lead to better policies. A careful inquiry cannot be done away by identifying trans people and asking them whether they have undertaken a medical transition. As Christine Labouski and Colt Mayer saint amand explain, transgender is a highly heterogeneous category and its categorization schemes must compose with the reality that, quote, a growing number of trans people explicitly resist categories that stabilize gender in any way, end quote. The same would, could be said of cis people and of people who confound the cis-trans binary. Since people have, cis people have similar surgeries to trans people for different reasons, too. Hysterectomies and mastectomy are commonly practiced for oncological purposes, to give one example. Some trans and non-binary people who have undergone these interventions have done so because of cancer, too. Assumptions about anatomy are fraught with risk for all populations. Medical transition is no more homogeneous than transgender as a category, invoking different procedures, chronologies, and combinations of procedures for different people, despite social norms to the contrary. Researchers have previously highlighted that questions on hormones and surgeries are often embedded within a gender binary that assumes that trans people are moving or have moved from one gender to another. In past studies, a substantial proportion of trans people who indicate they have completed a medical transition have not had any surgeries. Preserving accuracy requires us to avoid projecting cisnormative views of medical transition onto trans communities. Christine Labouski and Claude Meyer saint amand have warned against making assumptions about the relevance of certain metrics for both trans and cis communities when asking questions. Quote, what do questions about hormone use or surgery target, for example? Do they always inform the issue at hand? Do they preclude other potentially more relevant dimensions of bodily experience? If, for instance, libido shifts during or after transition, how to best understand the various roles played by the genitals, hormones, erotic attention, and the social environment? What roles do we think these factors play in any person's libido? And what are our assumptions regarding dif differences among trans, GNC, and cis libidos? Do we imagine that exogenous hormones affect trans and cis people in the same way? Are we willing to expand our findings to non-transgender people? And if not, why not? End quote. Institutions and government must ask themselves such questions when examining their gender information management practices. 
Although perfect accuracy may be out of reach, there is ample room to improve upon current practices. Principle three, consensualism. Sharing gender information should be done consensually and be guided by an aspiration towards informed consent. Concretely, this means that the purpose of asking for gender information and the recipients to that information should be clearly stated, what I call the Declaration of Purpose and Availability. It also means that giving gender information should be optional, what I call optionality, and that gender information should be administered in a modular manner that restricts access to those who need it to achieve the stated purpose, what I call modularity. The principle of consensualism aims at protecting privacy at offering a measure of individual control over risks of misgendering discrimination and at curtailing surveillance. So the Declaration of Purpose and Availability. When asking for gender information, a statement of why the information is requested and who will have access to it should be included. People need to know what they're consenting to when disclosing their gender information, as it is sensitive and private information. Vague clauses asserting that the information may be shared with third parties are insufficient, as individuals rarely have in mind the variety of uses the information may be put to. People are often unaware that information will be available to frontline staff, bears risk of identification, and may be shared with employers, insurers, and government agencies in a range of contexts. The declaration should be sufficiently specific to allow people to make an enlightened choice as to whether to give their information out. Statements of purpose and availability contribute to transparency and accountability. They empower communities by allowing them to judge for themselves whether necessity, accuracy, consensualism, and degendering are preserved, which in turn allows them to hold institutions and governments accountable. Transparency and accountability promote both gender equality, equality gender information management policies, as well as positive relationships with trans communities. Optionality. Disclosing gender information should be optional in the absence of clear legal or moral requirements to the contrary. People should not be forced to give, to give gender information to access services and resources generally available to the public. Optionality typically takes one of two forms. One, by making participation to information gathering optional, or by making gender information questions optional. Asking for gender information within a study is optional if, if individuals can refuse to participate in the study and do not derive significant benefits from participation. Studies in which benefits are sufficiently large to attract the participation of people who are morally adverse to sharing gender information may violate the requirement of optionality. In many cases, however, optionality is better served by making individual gender information questions optional as long as sufficient measures are undertaken to maintain the modularity of gender information management and ensure privacy. Even in studies that are not interested in information dissociated from gender information, missing data rates may offer some insight into the representativeness of the study. Whereas the meaning of clear legal requirements should be, well, clear, clear moral requirements maybe seems more ambiguous. This article asserts that affirmative action programs aimed at mitigating sexism would be a clear moral requirement, though they may violate the requirement of optionality because the benefits of participation for individuals can outweigh their moral aversion to disclosing gender information. The benefits of most such programs would outweigh their risks. Modularity. Gender information management should be modular. 
That is to say, gender information gathered for different purposes and programs should be administered independently and should generally not be shared between institutions and between various subsection of institutions. Gathering gender information for the purpose of uh, aggregate assessment or quality improvement initiatives may be justified, but that information should not be included in the institutional records accessible to frontline staff. As Hale Thompson points out, quote, while survey data are aggregated, sensitive disclosures within an individual's health records are often exposed to numerous parties besides the patient and clinician, end quote. This must be avoided, and modularity is one of the mechanisms through which an appropriate disclosure can be curtailed. Some schools have been known to keep what we call quote-unquote shadow files for trans students who have not changed their legal name and or gender markers. These files contain the person's legal name and gender marker and are not broadly available to teachers and staff members. Similar administrative schemes could be considered for the collection of demographic data. Private information, like inventories of certain anatomical features within the healthcare system, should only be available to those who need it, such as the person's physician or the researchers aggregating the data. Modularity addresses the ethical concerns raised in the above subparts on privacy and surveillance. Although needs can justify gender information management, gender information management structures should be carefully crafted to maximize privacy and minimize surveillance. Modularity allows for gender information to be available to as few people as possible and grant individuals control over who and when they disclose that information making disclosure to other unrelated people optional instead of mandatory under a broader gender information management scheme. People may want to use different gender markers in different contexts, something which is facilitated by modularity. And because institutions may defer their approaches to gender categorizations and change thereof, the same person may count as male for one institution and female for another, creating risks of re-identification as trans upon transmission of the information. Modularity also reduces the risks of inappropriate disclosure and misclassification by limiting access to information and, in particular, by limiting the transmission of gender information between and within institutions. Degendering. As a general rule, wherever an uncertainty arises in the application of the framework I'm proposing, it should be resolved in favor of degendering. Inevitably, applying the previous three guiding principles to a specific context of gender information in light of the various relevant ethical considerations leaves much to the discretion of individual policymakers. Given the, quote, implied shared understanding that certain things like gender are just necessary information for administering governmental programs, end quote, and the continuing trend towards the expansion in security and surveillance regimes, the principle of the gendering serves as a counterweight to pressures to request, record, and recount gender information. Presuming that any gathered sensitive information can and will be misused at some point, the gendering as on the side of safety. The principle of degendering also recognizes that the impact of gender information management on privacy and surveillance is difficult to appreciate because of the large scale and often indirect relationship it has with lived experience. Because breaches of privacy and increased surveillance are abstract and difficult to measure, they're prone to being undervalued and overlooked in policy analysis. Degendering applies when gender information is requested, 
recorded and recounted, as well as in evaluating how this should be done. Degenerating implies that not only that necessity be strictly respected, but also that considerations of accuracy be resolved in favor of degenerating the information. For example, an organization could request information on hormonal profile instead of gender information and preserve consensualism by favoring greater optionality and modularity where threshold levels of consensualism are met, but uncertainty remains. Referring to previous example, uncertainty as to whether a study should also make specific gender information question optional should be resolved in the affirmative answer. Doing so is more in line with degenerating than, uh, than is preserving optionality by merely requiring affirmative consent as a prerequisite of participation, since it better mitigates risks of self-exclusion, outing, misgendering, and discrimination. Part 3. Application to four common contexts of gender information management. This part applies the previously delineated guiding principles to four contexts of gender information management administrative records, special programs, aggregate assessment, and research. In each context, gender information is used for different reasons, responding to different needs and requirements, and creating different degrees and types of risks in relation to privacy, misgendering, discrimination, and surveillance. Broadly, the more the context of management is individualized, the less legitimate it will be to request, record, and report gender information. Conversely, the more the data is aggregated and anonymized, the fewer concerns raised are, are raised by gender information management. Administrative records. So administrative records are a large range of files, often electronic, which contain the information of identified individuals. They're most commonly used in the provision of direct services and serve a wide range of non-research purposes. Gender information found in those records are most commonly used to identify individuals, account for their individual needs and may secondarily provide accessible demographic data for later aggregate assessment, a context of management that we will be considering later. It's what frontline workers at institutions and government agencies access when, they, when you seek out services. Most administrative records are now electronic, although few entities still use paper records. Institutions and government agencies should avoid including gender information in administrative records. Gender information is neither necessary nor reliable in administrative contexts and actually creates significant risks of inappropriate disclosure and subsequent harassment, discrimination and violence due to the broad availability of such records, which are often available to all staff members and can even be transmitted to third parties in various situations. The privacy of service users is best preserved by simply removing gender information from records altogether. Merely recording gender identity is not an adequate substitute to degendering. Gender information is both psychologically and materially burdensome to change and can prevent users from accessing different spaces using different gender presentations or stated gender. Preserving gender information, even in the form of gender identity data, may lead trans people being identified as such because of discrepancies between the records and their gender presentation, or during uh, information transmission between and within institutions and agency, especially if the records are not standardized across all institutions and agencies. As previously mentioned, there are many reasons why people may want to have one gender in one place and another elsewhere. And there are many reasons why asking for a gender identity preserves risks associated with inappropriate disclosure. 
Making gender identity optional is unlikely to resolve this, as refusal to answer gender identity questions can lead to increased scrutiny. A complete removal of gender information from administrative records solves those various problems. Given the mandate to degender administrative records, information typically captured through gender information should be recorded using accurate non-gender terminology. For instance, reminders for prostate testing uh, for prostate testing can be coded independently or be predicated on organ inventory. This information should be available only in a need-to-know basis, granting the physician but not office staff access in the on this example, uh, following the principle of modularity. These measures will, will potentially require software changes to introduce well-defined user roles, depending on the institution or government agency's current functioning. Where a person's legal name and or gender information must be recorded due to clear legal requirements or practical concerns, such as insurance billing, the primary record should only include the name that the person elects to use, with legal name and gender information being separated from the primary record and not routinely accessible by staff. In the past, some organizations have relied on a shadow file system to pres preserve the privacy of trans students, with the Montreal Francophone School Board recommending keeping a second set of records for trans students, which is not typically accessible to teachers and staff, other than a few people in management. Governments should, where possible, allow individuals to use different names across different agencies. While recording pronouns could have some beneficial outcomes for trans people, it poses some similar risk to uh, gender information since pronouns are often a proxy for gender identity. Instead of listing pronouns on administrative records, institutions and governments should adopt well-advertised trans-inclusive policies, which discourage staff from assuming people's pronouns and encourage them to state their own name and pronouns when introducing themselves. For instance, I might systematically introduce myself thus. Hi, I'm Florence Ashley. I use they them pronouns. And you are? In instances where this was not done or when the interlocutor opts not to give their pronouns in return, the gender-neutral pronoun they can be used in referring to them. This should be done systematically, however, to avoid othering individuals that are believed to be or suspected of being trans. Using they only for those who are perceived to be gender nonconforming can discourage trans non-binary and gender nonconforming individuals from accessing institutional and governmental services. Given the necessity of removing all gender information from administrative records and the legitimate need to gather gender information for aggregate assessment purposes, Entities must maintain a watertight separation between administrative records and aggregate assessment management. One way this can be done is by requesting and recording gender information and demographics data on a separate intake form that is not tied to the individual's administrative record and which is not processed by frontline staff who may be able to associate the information to the person who turned in the form. Special programs. Institutions, especially government agencies, often request gender information to assess eligibility for specific programs, including affirmative action programs. Gender is often a criterion of eligibility, and it's not illegitimate to distribute resources and opportunities along gendered line, given the disparities in access to resources and opportunities along those same lines within society. Eligibility for special programs should be established solely based on gender identity and not sex assigned at birth. Trans-specific programs are of course legitimate and may rely on self-identification as transgender as an eligibility criterion. 
Clear definitions should be provided, though, as some people typically consider trans do not identify with the term. Those who establish eligibility criteria for special programs should carefully consider who they wish to include based in part on the purpose which the program seeks to serve. In my previous involvement with the student journal, originally aimed at redressing the suppression of the voices of women in law school, eligibility was extended to all individuals who experience misogyny and transmisogyny, as we understood uh, the suppression of voice to be a byproduct of these experiences. This means that, for instance, a non-binary trans-feminine individual like me was a welcome contributor to the journal since I experienced both misogyny and transmisogyny on a recurring basis, even though I'm not a woman. A program concerned with redressing all forms of gender marginalization might instead prefer to include everyone who is not a cisgender man as cis women, trans women, trans men, and non-binary individuals are as groups that are victims of gender oppression. Although the benefits granted by special programs may undermine the optionality of disclosing gender information, unlike research where non-participation does not typically involve significant loss of opportunity, redressing historical injustice is a sufficiently important goal to warrant maintaining the program despite lower degrees of optionality. However, programs should be administered separately from institutional records to ensure maximal privacy, and selected individuals should generally be allowed to opt out of any publicity associated with the program. Some programs, for instance, publicize winners. Those selected should generally be allowed to remain anonymous or keep their gender information confidential. Aggregate assessment. Often, institutions and governmental agencies wish to collect demographic data to assess their own satisfaction of certain standards or improve the quality of their work. For instance, a department may want to know what percentage of employees are women, or a hospital may want to assess whether a new local initiative seeking to educate the public about heart attack symptoms most common among women led to better survival rates for heart attacks among women at the hospital. The line between aggregate assessment and research is not always clear, but has significant consequences, since research involving human participants typically requires ethics approval, whereas aggregate assessment initiatives may not. Establishing what counts as research is, of course, beyond the scope of the present article, but drawing a distinction between aggregate assessment and research is nonetheless important because data for aggregate assessment is often routinely found in administrative records. This poses increased concerns of re-identification and lack of consensualism, as people are routinely asked for gender information as a condition of accessing care, whereas participation in research is more often than not purely optional. Aggregate information should be administered separately from administrative record and should be optional. This can be done, for instance, by asking individuals to fill optional intake forms which do not include their name or other identifying information. Because of the risk of re-identification, aggregate assessments raw data should not be made readily available. Where the information must be tied to information in the administrative record, measures should be taken to ensure that the data requested for aggregate assessment is not available to people who may interact with the individual or make decisions regarding them. To preserve optionality and modularity, no initiatives based on chart reviews or otherwise making use of administrative records should be done without individuals' consent if they include gender information or other sensitive information.
Inappropriate disclosures should be monitored and security protection should be put in place whenever sensitive information is included in aggregate assessment. When relevant, both gender identity and sex assigned at birth should be requested as part of assessment to enable subset analyses. Categorization as male or female should be done based on gender identity, not sex assigned at birth. Questionnaires should explicitly allow participants not to answer gender information while still answering other questions. High rates of refusing to answer gender information question can actually be an indicator that the context isn't perceived to be sufficiently safe or that the questions are poorly phrased. Research. Of the four contexts of gender information management, Research is often assumed to pose the least threat to individuals as participation requires informed consent and is subject to rigid regulations about information security and research ethics. However, researchers should be wary of the assumption that information they gather cannot be used to harm participants since the potential for re-identification can be high, especially with research about trans people. Canadian courts have recognized that access to raw data poses a risk to the privacy of trans people as they may be easily identified from it. However, not all jurisdiction or judges will be so disinclined to share raw data, and researchers should keep in mind the potential for misuse, whether facilitated by state authority or not. The recent proposal for national or international registries of trans youth, which have generated significant controversy, stand as an example of worrisome gender information management in the research context. Large-scale registries pose great risks of re-identification, especially given their ties to clinical care and delineated clinical population. Their necessity is questionable. Many studied designs are available which could be substituted for large-scale registries and provide comparable scientific evidence, and they raise significant concerns about consensualism since they would be closely tied to the clinics which the youth attend. Previous research emerging out of clinics has been criticized for failing to transparently ensure that patients could refuse to participate without any adverse impact on clinical care. Depending on the research question, gender information could be made optional. As is the case with aggregate assessment, non-answer rates can be informative as to the scientific validity and potential biases of the study. Whenever gender information is collected for research, trans participants should be identifiable. In large-scale population research and censuses, gender information should always be asked for and always include both gender identity and gender assigned at birth, as conducting secondary subset analyses is crucial to addressing the needs of trans communities. Those studies should preferably minimize risks of re-identification and thus not include people's names, addresses, or any other identifying information. Large-scale studies pose less risk of re-identification because of the sheer volume of data and sampling methodologies. Nevertheless, privacy measures should be carefully considered and implemented in all research involving gender information management. Part 4. Requesting, Recording, and Recounting Gender the previous part recommends when and whether gender information should be collected in four contexts of gender information management. In this part, I will consider how requesting, recording, and recounting gender information should be done when it is legitimate to collect it. Requesting gender information. How should institutions and government agencies ask for gender information? Whenever it's legitimate to do so, Gender information should be self-reported in a setting that preserves anonymity. 
which has been proven to decrease anxiety, limit potential discrimination, and increase the likelihood and honesty of response. This can be done online, whether at home or on a computer or a tablet provided on site. However, alternative means should be available since some people do not have computers and others may have difficulty filling out forms on their own due to illiteracy or disability. When responses are gathered on paper or in a more public setting such as schools, sensitive information such as gender should not be asked at the very beginning, as it can make people feel more self-conscious or feel that others may look at their responses. Forms asking for gender information should clearly indicate why the information is being gathered and who will have access to it. The language used on forms should be periodically reviewed to ensure that it is clear, accurate, and sensitive to trans realities. If possible, stakeholder groups should be convened for the purpose of elaborating sensitive and appropriate processes for requesting gender information. Recording gender information. One, two, step. And yes, this is a Ciara reference. Gender information should be recorded through a two-step approach, which records both gender identity and sex assigned at birth. Trans individuals can be identified based on the answers that they give to those two questions. What's unnecessary or undesirable to identify trans individuals, only gender identity should be recorded. A one-step approach is sometimes used to identify trans participants. This approach involves asking a single question with variants of the following option, male, female, transgender, or cis male, cis female, trans male, trans female, non-binary. Both of those options are inadequate. The first one implies that trans men and women are not respectively men and women and fails to distinguish between trans men and trans women who may have wildly different needs and experiences. The second option fails to distinguish between non-binary people of different genders assigned at birth who may also have significantly different needs and experiences. Research has suggested that the two-step approach is more effective at identifying trans respondents, leads to a much lower missing data rate, and remains comfortable to both trans and cis respondents. It is recommended by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, EMR Working Group, and the uh, Genius Group, and is now widely used and recommended in trans health. When using the two-step approach, Short explanations of gender identity and sex assigned at birth should be provided as not everyone is familiar with these notions. Asking for sex instead of gender slash sex assigned at birth can create confusion and lead to erroneous responses from both cis and trans people. Gender assignment at birth should be optional as many trans people are uncomfortable identifying their assigned gender and may avoid seeking services if reporting is mandatory. Those who decline to answer on forms may prefer disclosing their gender assignment to individual service providers if it becomes relevant within care provision. Gender identity questions can be formulated as, quote, which of the following options best represents your gender identity with the options man, woman, non-binary, genderqueer, a gender not listed here, with potential additional options representing the most common culturally specific identities in the geographical area of the institution or governmental body. For instance, US and Canadian-wide forms should allow self-reporting of two-spirit identities. The option gender not listed here identifies a write-in option where people can actually write their, um, their own gender identity in whatever term they prefer. If possible, individuals should be able to pick more than one identity from the list, as many people's gender identification is quite complex. 
If it is necessary to identify a single identity for analytical purposes, an additional question may be used to ask which category the person wants to be analyzed under. This can be coded using a skip logic if the form is completed electronically. Multidimensional measures of gender and gender identity can be used where appropriate depending on the purpose of aggregate assessment or research, with some authors proposing up to six questions on gender. Gender expression is being increasingly recognized as a relevant metric in research on social determinants of health and discrimination, for instance. Although writing gender options can lead to sarcastic or absurd responses, those can typically be identified due to the presence of additional mischievous answers as individuals who intentionally misrepresent their gender for nefarious reasons are likely to answer other questions mischievously. Questions on sex assigned at birth should not include options beyond male and female. The inclusion of an intersex option may fail to capture all intersex people, as some do not identify with that turn and set see themselves as having an intersex trait or a difference of sex development. Additionally, intersex people are routinely assigned a male or female gender, which is subsequently ratified in their birth certificate and, often, and oftentimes motivates non-consensual genital surgeries. Instead, a separate question may be included, which asks, are you an intersex person, or have you ever been diagnosed by a medical doctor with an intersex variation or a difference of sex development, or were you born with or developed naturally in puberty, genitals, and or chromosomal patterns that vary from the standard definition of male or female? I wish to thank Jenny Bastien Charlebois and Martin Bleff for, uh, the, for sharing this formulation with me. In light of the ethical considerations highlighted in this article, including a question about intersex people will be important in many studies which collect data on both gender identity and sex assigned at birth. Recounting gender information. Gender information should be guarded closely and ever so carefully disclosed. Institutions and governmental bodies should develop strong privacy and data anonymity policies in collaboration with stakeholders. In aggregate assessment and research, only aggregated data should be reported along gender lines with careful attention paid to the way in which data granularity may differ among trans people. Large-scale population research, which includes geographical markers, can make trans people uniquely identifiable, especially in rural areas. Data reporting policies should be sensitive to this issue. Gender-based analyses should be reported in a way that does not belittle or misgender trans people. Terms like quote-unquote biological sex or quote-unquote natal sex are inappropriate and should be avoided in favor of sex assigned at birth or other similar precise terminology. Gender-neutral language should be adopted in individual communications to avoid misgendering individuals based on the perceived gender associated with their name. Letters and emails should not include gender honorifics, such as Mr. or Mrs. This can be done by using the person's full name instead of honorific and last name. Using the singular they or second person singular you can be used to degender communications and avoid assuming that all recipients are either men or women. Various options for gender-neutral writing have been developed in languages which are more gendered than English, such as French. Usage of less common language developed by non-binary communities may be required in such cases. Conclusion 
Gender information management is becoming an area of increased concern and tension in recent years due to the parallel rise of transvisibility and the increase of governmental surveillance. Drawing on the principles of necessity, accuracy, consensualism, and degendering, it is possible to develop cogent and principled approaches to institutional and governmental management of gender information. As the foregoing analysis revealed, the inclusion of gender information in administrative records is illegitimate and should be avoided. By contrast, it is often necessary to request, record, or recount gender information to better represent and respond to the needs of trans people in contexts ranging from special programs to aggregate assessments and research. Institutions and government bodies should develop clear and unambiguous policies for gender information management in line with the present recommendations. They should do so in collaboration with and hold themselves accountable to trans communities. In parallel, resources should be allocated to developing adequate file management systems and shifting towards electronic self-reporting of demographic information. At the legislative level, amending privacy legislation to prohibit the use of gender information for identification purposes and requiring that institutions demonstrate reasonable necessity when requesting, recording, and recounting gender information would contribute to the development of more appropriate gender information management practices. Given the strong tension between the dangers of surveillance and the need for more information, as highlighted by trans people's experiences, it is no longer adequate to rely on cis-normative, under-theorized, or piecemeal approaches to gender information management. Current gender information management practices must be upended.